of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. And we're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we're going to take a look at Neil Young's Harvest, which turned 50 years old in February. Now, it's a gorgeous record and probably the one that people think of most when they think of Neil Young, which is actually weird because it's quite possibly the least representative Neil Young record ever. Yeah, I think before Neil Young started getting like glommed onto by the like pitchfork industrial complex as the elder you know noisy rock hipster guy i think i don't know like i when you were growing up did you have the sense of like the godfather of grunge because i pretty much only got like the glowing uh autumnal ballady neil stuff like i don't even think i heard crazy horse until i was well into like high school Oh, yeah, I definitely got him in the, like, Laurel Canyon, folky hippie realm through Heart of Gold and Old Man and yeah. everything. I mean, I almost get the impression that he put this record out purely to screw with the mainstream record-buying public for the next 50 years. Like, every time he would put an album out, people that didn't really know him, you know, holistically would buy it. And they go, oh, is there going to be another Heart of Gold on this? And then it's like, oh, it's a it's a techno record. That's weird. We got to do trans at some point. Oh, we absolutely got to do trans. <laughs> oh my God. Or everybody's rocking. Oh God. I, I love it when it almost seems like he's trying to intentionally wrong foot the people who bought and loved Harvest. And that was like the only thing that they loved from him. But despite its comparatively placid sound, Harvest was recorded during a tumultuous time in Neil Young's life between tours, surgeries, and the blossoming of a new romance. So Jordan, <laughs> why don't you talk us Take us back to a golden period in American history that 
I like to think of, and I, I hope all of you think of as the ass end of CSNY. <laughs> I feel like we need to do the Wayne's World, like time travel sound the spinning, effect. The spinning newspaper somehow comes right. flying at people's <laughs> yeah. phone that are listening to this. I think that was the right. Batman one. Yeah, that was definitely the Batmobile sound. Anyway, prepare yourself because we're about to dive in. You're going to find out how Neil Young's busted back impacted the sound of the record, which 70s icons had secret singing cameos, and how Neil crushed his father's spirit by divulging the true meaning of the track Old Man. We'll also talk about how some of the songs created a bit of tension with Bob Dylan, Leonard Skinner, and the London Symphony Orchestra. And of course, we'll explore the true love story at the heart of this record, Neil Young and his barn. So here we go. This is everything you didn't know about Harvest. So not to use this hoary old critical cliche, but Neil Young was in a weird place at the top of the 1970s. One might even say a crossroads. Perhaps a literal one, perhaps a metaphorical one, perhaps a musical one. Certainly, the roads were crossing for Neil. I'll stop now. Um, so Neil was in Buffalo Springfield throughout the late 60s, and he was also tacked on to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And then he recorded one of the all-time debut record under his own name, Flops, to my mind, up under Lou Reed's first solo debut with a 1968 self-titled that... Even for Neil Young completists, they seem to disregard this record. So I, I don't know. You you differ. I, I love <laughs> this record. I mean, I, I love that kind of like art pop. Uh, you, you know, I mean, for me, all those Jack Nietzsche arrangements are like if Phil Spector produced a Buffalo Springfield That's, record. I mean, you could draw a line between the amazing Buffalo Springfield track Expecting to yeah. Fly and this record. I mean, Expecting to Fly is one of my favorite Buffalo Springfield songs. And maybe it's because I came to Neil through all the kind of acoustic-y, folky stuff and then hearing it with this like huge love the orchestrated backing instrumental arrangements and everything. It just feels so incongruous to me that I kind of like it for almost like perverse reasons. But I, I love that record, but I know that's a, you know, extremely in a minority opinion. Yeah, I don't think Neil even shares that opinion because he follows up that self-title by going the complete opposite direction. He picks up Crazy Horse, one of the all-time sophisticated primitive groups. I love Crazy Horse. But, you know, if you want to talk about a band of people who are very good at doing very simple things, it's like them. It's like them and the Stooges. Anyway, that's they one record, of the best backhanded compliments I've ever heard. I mean, it's great. They're it's just they're a garage rock band who happen to sing like doo-wop harmonies. Anyway, we should also talk about, you know, everybody knows this is nowhere because that record's great. But it is a total left turn from the self-titled one. And then the next year, he sort of expands on that sound with After the Gold Rush, which has Only Love Can Break Your Heart, which is his sort of first big hit under his big name. And elements of this record, I do think, kind of prefigure Harvest. So I, I don't know how you feel about that. I kind of see what you're saying about that. I feel like there's a more of a sentimental heart in it than uh, in uh, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Is, is yeah. it true that Only Love Can Break Your Heart is about when Joni Mitchell broke up with Graham Nash? That's what I heard that was about, which seems like, again, like kind of an uncharacteristically sentimental thing for Neil to do. I mean, Neil is, you want to talk about a study in contrasts. You know, Neil Young is one of the most sentimental, nakedly emotional guys who is, can also be just a real bag of dicks. <laughs> just can be a real jerk to people. Yeah, according to Shaky, the Jimmy McDonough book, uh, which is like canonical 
like the Ur text of Neil Young that's been handed down from Laurel Canyon to, to Neil Young scholars. That's what he says in Shaky. So I believe McDonough. Anyway, also in 1970 and 1971, you have CSNY's Deja Vu and Four Way Street, the latter of which is a live live album called from performances that took place in the middle of 1970. So those come out in 1970 and 1971. But it's actually Neil's inability to continue playing live in the way that in the manner to which he had become accustomed that sort of provides the impetus for Harvest. So basically by late 1970, as hopefully you can glean from even this wildly digressive summary of his past few years, Neil is very fried and not just mentally. He had bought this big ranch up near San Francisco in August of 1970, and he is sort of bumbling around the the ranch, tries to pick up a big old piece of heavy wood, and in (laughs) in the spirit of thousands if not millions of wealthy white people who tried to do working class shit since then he just messed up his back and um you know neil also had polio when he was a kid just like Joni mitchell um his childhood so, friends or his teenage childhood friend i should say yeah canadian buddies and so that had already kind of impacted his kind of chunky the way he gets around on guitar not a virtuoso by any stretch, but can do all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things, obviously. But this back injury couples with his polio. And, well, I guess we should back up a little bit and talk about Broken Arrow Ranch before we get into the rest of Neil Young's, the convalescence phase. Broken Arrow Ranch is one of my favorite elements of the Neil Young, you know, myth. It was uh, named for the Buffalo Springfield song. And when he bought it, it was... uh, 1500 acre property which is just gargantuan i think he sold some of it uh, some of the property in later years but it still is this huge compound and it involves this insanely circuitous route of like redwood lined private roads to get to the main house and david crosby called that his human filtration system because it required a tremendous amount of know-how just to get to the house and you finally arrive at this homestead and there's this massive complex of buildings that includes one building just for his collection of toys trains he loves Loves, model trains loves trains loves model (laughs) trains there is uh, another building that just houses his extensive collection of vintage cars there's another that houses his master recordings for like the 20 plus records he's recorded in the studio that he made in his barn and there's a great profile by the late great david carr from about 10 years ago that describes broken arrow ranch as an open air fortress of eccentricity but yeah he went right after he bought it in like late 70 early 71 he was screwing around moving a hunk of walnut or something and he messed up his back Yeah, I think it's funny because Neil Young, sort of the rest of CSNY, you know, stills wears like football jerseys and David Crosby and, you know, Neil Young kind of look like wizards. But those guys made so much damn money. They made so much damn money. And uh, that's why, you know, you can afford a 1500 acre ranch with buildings just for your toy train collection. All of which is to say... Neil messes up his back, and he cannot carry around his Gibson Les Paul, which is another part of the sacred Neil texts, is Old Black, his favorite Les Paul. And Les Pauls are heavy guitars. They're very heavy, you know, yes. You, you think of all these like stick-thin dudes playing them, like Pete Townsend and Jimmy Page, and then you strap one of those things on, and it feels like you shouldered a bazooka. So he couldn't even stand up to play, either. So basically... He starts playing a bunch of shows, Seated, which is, as God intended it, the best way to play music. (laughs) 
standing is for rubes and he's playing with a martin d45 acoustic and this is uh you know one of martin's flagship models one of the most famous acoustic guitar models ever made and the same year 1971 they would actually produce more of their d28 model which is their other flagship than at any other point in their history and this is basically because of folk and folk rock you know the 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 fallout from that scene of the past five years everybody went out and bought a bought a martin so Neil is tooling around Canada and the U.S. doing shows, solo acoustic shows, in uh, late 1970. And in January 1971, he plays two of the most iconic Neil solo acoustic shows. There's the set at Toronto's Massey Hall, which is perfect start to finish. It's its own record. It's beautiful. Everyone go check out Neil Young live at Massey Hall. And a UCLA show, which I believe has also been released, but... That show, the UCLA show, is the show from which the needle and the damage done off Harvest is drawn from. And this is probably a good point to touch on the background of the needle and the damage done, which for those of you who might not know, it's a fairly famous story. Uh, And it's a haunting song because it's essentially a eulogy for a friend written while this person was still alive, which is really scary. Young wrote it about Danny Witten, who was one of the founding members of Crazy Horse, and he was very influential on much of Young's work preceding Harvest. And Danny, by 70 and 71, was uh, struggling with a heroin addiction, and that's obviously what the song is about. And Neil apparently attempted daily one-on-one lessons to try to rehabilitate uh, his friend, And that's what the song Needle and Damage Done is about. And uh, later, after Harvest was released in the fall of 72, when they were doing the tour to promote Harvest, Neil went out on tour with Crazy Horse, and he brought Witten in. I think he had Nils Lofgren as a backup guitarist, because Danny Witten really wasn't 100%. And during rehearsals for that tour, Witten was so strung out on heroin that he couldn't even hold up his guitar. So Neil basically fired him. He gave him 50 bucks, you know, really just to get him back home to Los Angeles. And I guess the day he reached Los Angeles, Danny Witten overdosed on uh, alcohol and Valium. And, you know, years later, uh, Neil was talking to his biographer, Jimmy McDonough, and he said he really felt responsible for Witten's death, and it took him years to stop blaming himself. I guess he made this really succinct statement about Needle and the Damage Done in the liner notes to the uh, compilation record Decade. I'm not a preacher, but drugs killed a lot of great men, and one of them was his friend Danny Witten. Interesting that he performed the song at Live Aid in 1985, which, yeah, that was a strange choice. A lot more like anthemic songs, really, people chose for that performance. But uh, Neil loves wrecking the room. <laughs> That's his favorite thing to do. Comes in, assesses the vibe, does the opposite. In his discography, in actual rooms, in concerts, I love him for it. But, you know, in lighter news... Uh, you know, the other big thing that goes into Harvest is an actress named Carrie Snodgrass. And she's sort of Neil's muse for the record, really. He saw Diary of a Mad Housewife at the behest of his roadie Guillermo Guillermo Giacchetti. Uh, Guillermo Giacchetti, I guess. Giacchetti. I don't know. I'm Italian. I should know how to pronounce that. The Sicilian that relatives are rolling over. <laughs> I know. I know. Right it's really embarrassing. That, um, so this... so. They're on tour in uh, D.C. in December 1970, and Guillermo says, hey, Neil, let's go take in this movie. And this is actually about two months after Young's first wife, Susan Acevedo, files for divorce. But, uh, you know, I just want to talk about Carrie Snodgrass for a moment. Her career kind of gets glossed over in the Neil story, but, I mean, she got an Oscar nomination for her role in The Diary of a Mad Housewife. She was a big deal at the time. I feel like that bears very Yeah, repeating. absolutely. Uh, particularly when you get to the idea that she doesn't know who he is, but <laughs> <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
Neil Young is, you know, he's smitten. And so he sends Guillermo and another roadie, Bruce Barry, and they go to the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, where Snodgrass is performing in a play called Rose Bloom. And this is this period of history when you could get away with doing stuff like this. They just got into her dressing room and left a note that says, call Neil Young on her table. But she doesn't even know who he is. So her roommate clues her in. Oh, yeah, Neil Young. He was in this band, Buffalo Springfield, and Crosby, Stills, Nash. Wrote a couple songs. Anyway, their first date does not set things up for success because they go to Young's room at the Chateau Marmont, which is a famously debauched hotel that all manner of horrible shit has happened at. It's where John Belushi OD'd. Yeah, it's, I'm sure many others that I can't think of offhand. But yeah, it is certainly extremely haunted. We should do an episode on the Chateau Marmont, actually. Oh, big time, yeah. Um, it was a great book by, uh, oh, I forget who wrote it, but it was a great history about Chateau Marmont that came out a few years ago. I think his name's Nick Levy. Uh, incredible book. Anyway, oh, yeah. proceed. Yeah, so their first date happens in Young's room at the Chateau Marmont, and he is confined to bed and wearing a neck brace, which Sparks clearly flew. Um, Snodgrass would tell Jimmy McDonough that her big memory from their date is how stoned they got. They were smoking Panama Red, baby. And she got so high that she got lost driving home and had to pull over and go to sleep. But despite that inauspicious beginning, to use an old cliche, things end up working out. And Snodgrass moves on to Broken Arrow in 1971, bringing apparently quite the entourage with her, including her mother. And although Neil had started writing a lot of Harvest, getting the material together before they met, he wrote in 2019 that the bulk of this record was written for or about Carrie Snodgrass, a wonderful actress and person. And she would go on to give birth to their son, Zeke, in 1972. Yeah, and for years, Neil was kind of cagey about her influence on a lot of these songs. I mean, it seems really obvious on a song like A Man Needs a Maid with lines like, A while ago, somewhere, I don't know when, I was watching a movie with a friend. I fell in love with the actress. She was paying a part that I could understand. But when Jimmy McDonough, I guess, was asking him about that song uh, and just asked her about Carrie's influence on it, Neil just said, well, she's in there, which is a very, very Neil explanation. <laughs> um, but then it features a song like Heart of Gold, which comes from such a, a restless and unsettled place. You know, I'm searching for a heart of gold and I'm getting old. I, even just like a brief glance at the lyrics, it makes you wonder kind of if he was all that committed to that relationship or if, like he says in the song, he was still searching. I mean, they the relationship ultimately didn't pan out. Uh, they broke up a few years later. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to try to get into the, well, it, it, getting into the Neil Young psychology is a dangerous place to be. I mean, I, I feel like we could die if we tried. But um, yeah, I mean, Neil is an unreliable narrator at best. Obviously, he has been extremely open about his lifelong marijuana use. And he also just kind of seems to get a kick out of screwing with his own legacy so you can take almost everything he says with some portion of salt and having said all that we'll be right back with more too much information right after this witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. So harvest is not even planned to be harvest. Harvest is planned by the label to be a double live album. And Reprise actually went so far as to release a track list for this proposed album. Uh, I guess I didn't know that. Yeah, through the press. Um, Sam Angus writes that in the Harvest 33 and a third. And basically his hypothesis is that the release of CSNY's four-way street preempts that they don't want to flood the zone with enormous bloated live albums that feature overlap between members so by february of 71 neil young is in nashville he's there to tape an appearance on the johnny cash show along with fellow folky rising stars james taylor and linda ronstadt and this proposed live album has been sunk it's dead in the water so he doesn't know what he's doing next but he's in nashville and you know Neil Young does kind of live a charmed life because he basically stumbles into the core of this record. And a lot of that story begins with a guy named Elliot Mazur, who is a New York native who had relocated to Nashville and created his own studio called Quadraphonic Sound Studios in a little two-story Victorian just off Nashville's Music Row. Yeah, I mean, this place really pushes the definition of homey to its limits. The control room was the old porch of the house. The living room and the dining room were the two live rooms where people played. And the kitchen became like the drum area. And it was called Quadraphonic as a joke because it was Quadraphonic was the most technologically advanced sound at the time. There's stereo, which is two. Quadraphonic is four speakers. And this was like the most stripped down place you could make a record that you could imagine. It's like calling it Electric Ladyland. It's just always filled with dudes. (laughs) 
So Mazer is also, he's a known quantity in the industry because he's cut two albums of instrumentals with, uh, I don't want to call them a ragtag group, but they're kind of a thrown together band of session musicians called Area Code 615, which is a self-explanatory name. Why don't you explain it, Ivo? <laughs> <laughs> Just Google it. I don't have time to, come on, time is money, people. It's the Nashville Area Code. So these guys have played on Blonde on Blonde. They've played on Nashville Skyline. They have played all over on God knows how many records. And so Mazer is running in this circle, and he kind of has his eye on New Young because he knows he's in town. The Johnny Cash show taping, that was a big thing. So all of these industry guys are floating around, and Mazer decides to throw a dinner party, and he invites Neil. With, like, 50 other people, I feel like it, it, it should be said. I mean, this is like a big group of, like, the who's yeah. who of Nashville insiders. I'm reasonably certain James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt also came, too. I mean, this was a big event. At some point, Neil Young says, hey, man, I'm into those Area Code 615 records. Is it 615 or 615? I think it's 615. I don't care. Those are great records, um, by the way. They really are. Yeah, they are great records. Yeah. And so that's all Neil needs. As this becomes a theme in his career, he goes, I'm going to make a record. And people are like, cool, how do you want to like, like, let's talk about it. And he's like, no, I want to make a record now. So <laughs> this is a Saturday night and uh, Mazer just decides to get as many guys as he can together because it's a Saturday night and Nashville session players record all during the week, eight hours a day. So on the Saturday... What do they do, Jordan? Uh, well, on the weekends, they go fishing a lot. So we actually had a hard time finding people to play with Neil because a lot of them had gone fishing for the weekend, apparently. But one guy, one guy who didn't go fishing is bassist Tim Drummond, who Mazer told BMI in 2007 they literally found walking down the street. I believe it was another music industry photographer who was just out on the street and saw Tim rolling down the street and was like, hey you look like you can play some bass. Like, come on, come on down. And as luck would have it, they found the only white guy who ever played in James Brown's Famous Flames band. That's the only guy? Wow. I didn't realize that was the only white guy. That is what I I have heard. I have not cross-referenced the entirety of James Brown's uh, employee records, which I do have (laughs) access to through a Freedom of Information Act request. (laughs) Uh, I have not cross-referenced that, but that is what I've heard. So... Imagine, the, again, Neil Young leads a charmed life. Imagine you're going to make a record. You can't find a bass player. You find the one white guy who played bass for James Brown walking down the street. Incredible. There's other guys in there. We'll get to them. This band is christened the Stray Gators. Another uh, Great name. Yeah, Great another, name. Neil Young really knocks it out of the park with band names. Um, Did he name Crazy Horse? I believe so. Uh, I assume, because he's got that kind of a weird Native American fixation. I assume. I don't want to read too much into that. So this band, the Stray Gators, records live in the house, and they track harvest cuts like Old Man, Bad Fog of Loneliness, and Dance, 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 although those last two are not the versions that are included on the record. But the second session that they cut does wind up in the basic tracks for Heart of Gold, and Mazer says that this song was recorded in one or two takes over the course of about two hours, with Neil just situated in the doorway between the house's old dining room and the living room. And, I mean, the speed that they did this is really not out of the ordinary for these Nashville session pros. I mean, they they knew how to bash this stuff out. And it's kind of a throwback to the old analog days when tape was expensive and it was necessary to conserve and really just kind of get it down quickly. 
And also, this is not atypical for Neil Young. He kind of doesn't give a damn. Like, he capturing the moment is so much more crucial to him than capturing like, a slick track, uh, especially since doing something like Ohio with CSNY the previous spring in the spring of 70, which he really was kind of his dispatch on the Kent State massacre. And he really wanted it to get out immediately. And like, it was like, getting it out, like, within, I think, a matter of weeks after the event was uh, was crucial. So that really started him deciding to just get in, get out, let's get these out there. He wanted the electricity and the immediacy of the room to be kind of the most important thing than getting all the notes right. Uh, so he quit bothering with overdubs and, you know, reduced basic tracks at just like one or two takes. So he was on the same page with these Nashville players who basically thought that overdubbing was pretty ruinous to the recording process because it just spoiled the spontaneity. And this is a theme that this is Neil Young has done this for his whole career. I mean, you there's interviews with the crazy horse guys where they're like, yeah, we, you know, we come in and and he runs the, the song through like twice. And then he's like, yep, that's it. <laughs> that's how he rolls I mean speaking of the Stray Gators we're researching this episode did you know that members of the Stray Gators I think Tim Drummond and Kenny Buttry the drummer played on Jules Pieces of Me album I did not yeah I think Spooner I did Oldham not. did too like she had some great players oh, on that Spooner Spooner's the man I love that dude um, so speaking of Kenny Buttry uh, as we often do as we often do <laughs> In times like these, the mind goes to Kenny Buttrey. Uh, again, a guy who played on Nashville Skyline and Blonde on Blonde. Incredible and, Bob Dylan records for anyone not familiar, though. If you've listened this far, you probably are. Um, and and Mazer called him the kind of drummer that ate engineers alive if they did not get a good drum sound and a good earphone mix. Which is so funny because on Harvest, he's pretty much reduced to playing kick, snare, kick, kick, snare on almost every song. But like a haiku, there's deceptive complexity in those drum parts. And apparently he was seated over to Neil's right so he could watch his strumming hand to get the timing. But they just kept telling him to play less and less. And Mazer and he have both basically said that at one point he was doing so little that he either sat on one of his hands or used the hand that wasn't hitting the snare to keep an eighth note pulse on his thigh. I heard that Neil told him to sit on his hand just so that he did that he would only play with one stick so that it would force him to keep it. I mean, this is a guy who could do anything on the kit. And he's like you said, he's just yeah. keeping time with one hand as per Neil's request. I mean, it, years later, Buttry was saying that Neil kept saying less is more, less is more. He just that was his mantra during these sessions. I just have to throw this in there. There's a, the other instance that I can remember of this is when Joy Division was recording Unknown Pleasures. Martin Hannett, who is like their engineer and famous UK engineer, he uh, wanted to get the drum parts as dry as possible. So he made their drummer, Stephen Morris, record each drum individually. So he it sounds like, like a one nightmare. tom at a time, like one snake. Oh my God, I can't, I can't imagine doing it. And so he would keep time on his like, thighs while he was just recording like just the snare part or like one tom part yeah i would go insane uh <laughs> but you know i don't have a good segue for this linda ronstadt and james taylor <laughs> we talked about them being in town to tape johnny cash show and um which have you seen Neil 
It's on YouTube, and it's kind of amazing. Neil plays Needle and the Damage Done, but it's preempted by this footage of Johnny Cash kind of like in amongst all these teenagers out in like a park somewhere. And they're throwing all these questions to him about like, do you think that marijuana is a gateway drug to heroin? And he's given these really thoughtful, honest responses. Like, I think he says like, I learned the hard way about drugs. I courted death with it. For a long time, I took my chances. And for a long time, I tried anything I was able to try. And he's like really getting real with them. It's kind of an amazing bit of film. And then they go to Neil doing that, you know, incredibly heavy song, which just is like, I don't know. I mean, for 1971, it's a heavy song to have on network TV. Well, Nashville's also pretty conservative. I can imagine like a bunch of Nashville people being like, this is our anti-drug episode. The fact that they get Johnny Cash to, to be like Johnny Cash. I learned speed for four years, uh, which is, I guess, you know, he comes from a place of authority. But so Ronstadt and Taylor are in town. They're all hanging out. And uh, Mazer has also worked with Linda Ronstadt before. Uh, he produced Silk Purse for her in 1970. So they get invited over to Quadraphonic after they do this show together. They both sing on Old Man. And basically the way that they just did this was they were in the control room, which is on the porch. And... Um, Mazer just drags a bunch of speakers into the control room and just sticks a mic in front of them. And they just sang along from the couch. <laughs> and I love apparently Linda Ronsett years later was saying that she's so small and James Taylor's so tall that, well, she had to kneel on the couch just to be as tall as James Taylor sitting upright just so that she, they could reach the same mic, which I, I love Linda Ronsett so much. It's, it's Yeah, she's the best. Adorable story. So they both sing on uh, Heart of Gold and Old Man. And then... Taylor also plays the six-string banjo, which is a thing that pops up on Neil's record. It's a banjo that is just tuned like a guitar. It has six strings instead of the usual five. He plays it on For the Turnstiles on On the Beach later, and uh, that's James Taylor's contribution to that record. But Stephen Stills, David Crosby, and Graham Nash actually also all contribute vocals to this. Um, I had read somewhere that it was these were done in New York, but I'm also reading in the 33 and a third book that these were tracked at Broken Arrow and that while Nash was there, this gets into the famous barn story. So we'll have to pick up that later. But in the meantime, we're going to take a little detour. We're going to take a little trip across the pond to get back to the recording of Harvest and one of my least favorite Neil Young songs. <laughs> the second part of that recording takes place in London. Young flies in in March uh, to perform on the BBC. And you're a big fan of this this program. Oh, yeah. It's called, uh, I think it's just called In Concert, like BBC In Concert. And it's on YouTube. Definitely check it out. I mean, some really, like basically every Neil Young documentary you see whenever they're going through the Harvest era pulls clips from this performance. It's really amazing. I think the clips of him doing Old Man are on there. It's really incredible. But the flip side of these incredible performances of the BBC are two of probably the least popular tracks on Harvest, A Man Needs a Maid and There's a World, which saw Neil reteam with uh, this old producer, Jack Nietzsche, who wrote the really elaborate arrangements that I love on his first solo record and the arrangements that he did on Buffalo Springfield's uh, Expecting the Fly. These arrangements don't really fit as well on Harvest. I don't think I'm alone in saying that. Uh, he wrote these really elaborate orchestral parts for the London Symphony Orchestra that they recorded with the Rolling Stones mobile unit 
at like a municipal town hall in this London suburb, which is kind of like the least. Called barking. In the London suburb of barking, Neil Young is in this like little town hall building. I I can't think of a less Neil Young environment to work in. Like that's so strange to me. Yeah. And they uh, they lay down these, uh, these tracks for A Man Needs a Maid and There's a World, I think live with the orchestra, right? He's playing with them. Yeah, and it's it's a nightmare. Oh, I mean, we also have to note that this is recorded by Glenn Johns, baby! Glenn Johns, but, but, late of the Get Back Beatles documentary, the style icon. Glenn Johns, I mean, you know, one of the most legendary producers of all time. I mean, who hasn't he worked with? Led Zeppelin, yeah. The Who, The Stones, The Beatles, you know, so many. But I, I didn't <laughs> realize that he did that. I mean, yeah. Uh, sometimes a man has to go back to his roots and barking. I don't actually know that he's from barking. I just wanted to say barking again. But the members of the London Symphony Orchestra who are perhaps gang-pressed into playing this um, doesn't seem like anybody had a good time doing this. There's this clip of him telling Nietzsche, uh, he's on the, Nietzsche, he's telling Friedrich Nietzsche, um, <laughs> he's at the piano and he's kind of having a, he's like, Neil's like, having a bad time. Neil, God is dead and so is this track. <laughs> hey <laughs> But you can see him on the piano and he's saying the, it's obvious that the orchestra musicians, like, they have to hear me. He says they were playing a half beat behind me all the way through the f***ing thing, um, which Neil Young angry is so funny because it's just like he still has that, like, detached Canadianness, But he's just, like, swearing at the London Symphony Orchestra from a piano. So surreal. But... You know, Neil and Jack's relationship doesn't just extend to the recording studio. Yeah, there's a weird fact about Jack. I always thought it was pronounced Jack Nietzsche. Uh, I guess, I mean, he obviously arranged The Man Needs a Maid, which was inspired, as we said, by Neil's relationship with the actress Carrie Snodgrass. And she and Neil broke up in the mid-70s. And a few years later, Jack Nietzsche actually dated her. And it didn't end well, to say the least. He was later sentenced to probation after he beat her with a handgun in 1979. Uh, it's probably worth Christ. noting that Jack Nietzsche got his big break in music working with Phil Spector. So, uh, I mean, Phil Spector also worked with Ike Turner, too, for River Deep Mountain High with Tina. So, scumbags attract scumbags. But uh, anyway, Jack Nietzsche for you. <laughs> But yeah. on the topic, ladies and gentlemen, Jack Nietzsche. <laughs> right. But on the topic of a man needs a maid, did you know? I didn't realize this until researching this episode that that was supposed to be paired with Heart of Gold as a medley. I am so damn glad it did not because can you imagine if the if Heart of Gold was grafted onto a man needs a maid? It's pretty strange, but I think there's clips of him in early '70 live uh, performance clips of him playing those two songs together on piano. And uh, I think it's on the live at Massey Hall recording in 71. But then halfway through these dates, he, he switches and he goes from piano to guitar and he splits the songs into two. One line that he cut uh, after the original song became two separate songs was, Afraid, a man feels afraid. I, I Actually, that makes more like hearing that as the original lyric, like, afraid. It's so much more harrowing. I don't know. I'm in the camp of not liking this song. You actually have some interesting things that you dredged up about it that maybe... <laughs> well, anything related to a man needs a maid is dredging. Um, but please try and change my mind. 
I mean, a lot of people hate the song, not only because of the overloan orchestration, but the title and chorus, which, you know, many people understandably view as sexist. Neil himself defended the title in later years by saying that it was written in the spirit of Robin Hood's Maid Marian. Uh, There's a great quote that he said, Robin Hood loved a maid long before women's liberation. Uh, Can we get a judge's ruling on that? How do you feel about that? It's just, I mean, I love Neil, and I think he writes so well on topics like loneliness and Mm. And self-loathing yeah and he's he is also good at articulating like romantic love in a way that is but he also tips into platitudes and this is just a bad lazy idea to hang a song on in my opinion and dredging it and and dredging and uh coding it with the london symphony like what a oh my god to be a fly on the wall in that conversation like oh yeah neil what what else you got well, I've got this song about how I want to be waited on, <laughs> hand and foot. Uh, great. Let's get the London Symphony Orchestra on that one. I don't know. Anyway, Rolling Stone has a great slam on. You think it works? Uh, what? Man, you think this song, or you think this and there and there's a world both work? No, You're pro I, I, these I think songs. the arrangements work better than There's a World, which is probably mm. the most controversial song. Certainly on this album, if not in Neil's canon, I think it's probably the one that people skip the most often on Harvest. And like I said, like I like Neil Young's heavily orchestrated stuff, but this one I just think is is too overblown. And Rolling Stone has a great uh, line about this song. They put it on their terrible songs by great artists list. They say, for some reason, Young thought the London Symphony Orchestra would mesh with this song. The result is like a chocolate-covered cheeseburger. <laughs> Boom. Which, Fair. But Neil himself, as is so often the case, doesn't care what the critics say, and he's fine with it. Uh, he later said, Bob Dylan told me it was one of his favorites of mine, so I listened closer to Bob. Which, I mean, I guess if Bob Dylan says that one of your songs is his favorite, then that's kind of a good mic drop. I don't believe him. <laughs> I don't believe that. I mean, Bob Dylan's sure as hell not going to confirm or deny, so you're right. I guess if there's somebody that you can just yeah. say... Yeah, you know, especially if you're like... I mean, he's not going to yeah. come out. What's he going to do? Come out of being a crazy old dude and, like, disconfirm that? I don't know. Whatever. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. 
Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. So now it's time for us to get into the other big love affair that really colors all of Harvest, which is Neil Young and his barn. (laughs) Did you not see that one coming? Did you not see me setting that up? (laughs) No, I I, I didn't. It's it's really incredible, but it's perfect because I'm amazed that it hasn't burned down. Yeah. I mean, it it looks like a giant Lincoln Log set. I mean, there's like footage of him recording in the barn and there's like sunlight streaming through the gaps in the logs. I mean, it's like obviously not insulated. Like, like what happens when it rains? I don't know. There was apparently still a lot of bird all over it when the stray stray gatters. There was apparently still a lot of bird all over the barn when the stray gators showed up at uh, Broken Arrow to reconvene recording sessions, which happens after Neil has surgery in August and he gets his discs fixed. Um, and there's hay. Every, I mean, it's a barn. It's a barn. It's not. It's not like a bougie recording studio. Recon, re, you know, it's a barn. I bet you the hay works as like sound absorption and stuff, and Probably. and maybe like the yeah. bird droppings are like organic echo plates or something i don't know like (laughs) is that how that works uh yes absolutely and you know this gives way to probably one of the other ur texts of neil young lore where graham nash recalls this it's in shaky it's in the hearts and minds of neil young fans everywhere young and mazer rigged up the barn and the house with a bunch of speakers and amplifiers to act as separate channels of a monitor system and incidentally, Mazer also used the natural echo and reverb created by the way the barn nestled up against the hills. That's part of the sound on Harvest. He, you know, dragged microphones out back and used the barn as a playback monitor. I didn't and then know that. Captured, captured the echoes out in the hills. It's wild. But this setup results in, you know, Graham Nash is there. He's laying down vocals. He's listening to rough mixes. And uh, Neil Young rows him out into the middle of the lake. And Graham's looking around and... All of a sudden, the playback of Harvest comes blasting out across the lake from the house and from the barn. And uh, For those you know, less technologically inclined, the barn and the house have become two giant speakers. A yes. barn-sized speaker and a house-sized speaker just filled yeah. with monitors and stuff out front. The sound is absolutely deafening. I mean, the lake is pretty far from those structures being... 
in the house. I mean, I'm sure that eardrums were probably bleeding. Yeah. And so they're and so Nash and Young are out in the middle of the lake and they're listening to playback. And at one point, Neil's note is more barn. <laughs> this is just one of the favorite one of the it's like a, a secret handshake for new young fans. And it got to the point where there's this guy named Brad Brando who created a line of shirts that have this like sort of airbrush style cartoon rendering of, of Neil Young yelling more barn out in a rowboat. It's a great shirt. You should look it up. I don't know if they're still making them. This It's the joke that keeps on giving. I mean, it seems like it was a myth. It seems like one of those things that you would just say about Neil Young. But Neil actually confirmed it in a 2016 interview with the Huffington Post. But he, he, he confirmed it in the most Neil Young way imaginable. So, oh, yeah, I did say that. I thought it was a little house heavy. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about all the different places that he recorded this record. It's kind of amazing that the record sounds as coherent as it does. I mean, these are very distinct sessions mm-hmm. here. I mean, going from, you know, the London Symphony Orchestra in a small London suburb town hall to a bunch of Nashville dudes in a restored 19th century country barn. It's, that's kind of a jump. And I think it's a testament to Neil and Mazer, I guess, to making a record that sounds so, you know, of a piece. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that this record does is um, <laughs> continue Neil's not feud with Leonard Skinner, which is like another giant thing that was like part of both of those artists' legacies. Um, so Alabama is <laughs> part two in things Neil Young has to say about the American South. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a sequel to Southern Man from After the Gold Rush, and famously both tracks really pissed off Leonard Skinnerd, who wrote uh, Sweet Home Alabama, in part as a response to those songs, and of course it has the line, you know, I hope Neil Young will remember Southern Man, don't want him around anyhow, which started their non-feud, it was more yeah. of a, uh, a respectful dialogue between two artists who I guess are probably more alike than they are different, despite their difference of opinion but uh in any event neil himself doesn't really care much for that song these days in his um 2012 autobiography waging heavy peace which might be the most boomer bio title i've ever heard neil said this of the song i don't like my words when i listen to it today they're accusatory and condescending not fully thought out and too easy to misconstrue which is all fairly true yeah that's fair but still, he did inspire a, uh, a Southern rock classic out of those songs. So something good did come of it. There's another tune on here that is sort of a deep cut is Words Between the Lines of Age. It's interesting because befitting its ponderous title, uh, <laughs> Words is Neil's only real stab at mixed meter stuff. I mean, he has waltzes and he has kick, snare, kick, kick, snare. But this tune is... You can either count it as having a bar of 11-8 or two bars, one of 5-8 and one of 6-8. And it is so bizarre because I don't think he does this anywhere else in his discography. I'm sure someone on the Steve Hoffman forums or (laughs) Jimmy McDonough, somebody can tell me I'm wrong here. But like he does not do mixed meter stuff. And it's my personal theory about this is that it, it was either a mistake that he was like, I like that, we're keeping it. And it's so difficult that they never did it again because to be honest, he sounds outclassed on his own song here when he's trying to play lead over it and he like cannot figure out where the bars so my theory is that it was a mistake that he liked and wrote a song around it which fine or the grateful dead around this time had a song in their live set called the 11 that is actually a great song in 11 8 and it just it sounds really cool so my other theory is that he saw the dead at some point and was like i can write a song in 11 <laughs> which no you can't 
I've been keeping my Neil Young impressions admirably in check, I think. Um, but this seems like a good time to throw to Jordan's bit about a Dana Carvey song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, speak, the name of the song is Words Between the Lines of Age. Uh, on the topic of Ugh. Neil Young's words, uh, Dana Carvey's a bit in a 1995 stand-up special called Every Neil Young Song You've Ever Heard. And it's this great parody song. He does a pretty dead-on Neil Young impression, and he's singing lyrics like, Dead dog lying in the ditch, cigarette smoker has an itch. Can you, can you, do, you can do a great Neil Young impression. Can you sing that? <laughs> Dead dog lying in the ditch. Like Adam Sandler. Cigarette. I can't do his vibrato. Smoker has an itch. I don't know this song. I gotta look it up. Oh um, yeah, it's pretty good. But uh, at the time when Harvest was uh, released, and we'll talk more about the contemporary reviews later, but early reviews were really turned off by its kind of impenetrable lyrics. And uh, Rolling Stone, in their review, thought that the words for Are You Ready for the Country seemed like an in-joke throwaway. This is a quote. Intended for the amusement of certain of Neil's superstar pals. I just thought it was Are You Ready for Some Football? That's all I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> New Young being like, all my rowdy friends are coming over tonight. No, I don't know. There's a very, like, there's a book in me that I don't have, or someone else has probably already written about, like, the way that Canadians see the American South. Because, like, oh, can, yeah. Canadians and. Yeah, like, Canadian boonies are kind of similar to, like, American boonies. I mean, like, Rick Danko grew up on, like, a tobacco farm, but. Canadians seem to have this, like, maybe because it's more cold rural versus hot rural, but they have this weird fixation on, like, American country music in the South and, like, the antebellum South and everything. I don't know. It's weird. Do we know any Canadians? Do you know any Canadians? Maybe we can get a Canadian on the show to talk about that. <laughs> Tweet at us. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, but now let's get to some of the, the real, let's shut up and play the hits. Let's get to Old Man. Oh, which, what a what a devastating track, which will become even more devastating when you hear the story about it. Neil Young murders people. He <laughs> stabs people in their heart and their mind, and that extends to people he's worked with and members of his own family. So Old Man, as many people know, was not written about his dad. It's written about the guy who kind of came with the ranch, the guy who like came with Broken Arrow, <laughs> this name, man, ranch hand named uh, Louis Avila. And I guess Neil met him and wrote a song about him. And Neil Young's dad was just Scott Young, blithely going through life, talking about how much he loved this hit that was presumably written about him. And he, he has an autobiography called Neil and Me that he wrote in 1984. And he talks about the moment that he tells Neil, he says, like, you know, I really love that song that you, uh, that, that old man that you wrote about me. And <laughs> Neil tells him to his face, nope, <laughs> not about you. It's about the guy who looks after my ranch. <laughs> my handyman. Sorry, dad. Like, what? Why do you do that to your father? Don't you just lie to him? <laughs> just and say, let him yeah. have that. Let him have uh, yeah. that. And so Scott Young caps this recollection in the autobiography by just writing, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Oh. oh. So Neil met Lewis when he was, uh, he was getting a, a tour of the ranch. And um, Lewis quite rightly asks him, you know, you are 25 years old. <laughs> Although Neil Young never looked 25. Neil Young was born at 40 and has only gotten older since... 
But St. Louis, this guy says, you know, like I said, quite rightly, how can you afford a $350,000, 1,500-acre ranch? And Neil says, just lucky, Louie, just real lucky. Just just admit you made more money than God and you blew it all on trying to launch Pono. <laughs> That's right. He did have to sell some of the ranch in recent years. And he, I guess yeah, in that well, David Carr piece, he was talking about like, yeah, I need some money. I wonder if it was for Pono. I mean, his passions bankrupt him constantly. It's what kills me so much about him. I think it's so funny. He spends all of his money on like trains and trying to get old Lincolns to like run on <laughs> corn fuel and audiophile quality streaming. And then he's just like, well, now I don't have any money and I have to go out to tour. And like... Jesus, you guys made more money than God invests. You should have invested some of it. Anyway, anyway. Um, <laughs> but I mean, back to, to old man. Back to old I mean, man. As much as you sound like an old man right now, back to old man. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, when you think about it, it's really kind of an astonishing topic for a song because, you know, Neil's coming out of this long period of deep suspicion towards adults you know this is 1970 1971 the time of the famous generation gap and you know they're hippies wearing pins that say don't trust anyone over 30 and all that and you know when neil young was in buffalo springfield he had you know his fellow la clubmates the doors singing the end which has you know father i want to kill you etc etc and that sense of suspicion towards your parents it had dissipated a bit by the dawn of the 70s but it's still kind of hard to grasp how not cool it was for you to look up to, you know, in quote, grown-ups at this time. And it really kind of seemed to fly in the face of this really rapidly fading kind of hippie ideal. And it's not even, it's not even the only Neil Young parent, I mean, not his parent, but it's not even the only parent track on Harvest. Yes, that that's true. Speaking of crushing parents, the title track of Harvest has a really interesting and just emotionally devastating backstory uh it's weird to me how overshadowed harvest the song is by other songs on this record because i mean neil apparently considers it one of his best songs that he ever wrote and he's quoted as saying it's the best thing on harvest but the inspiration's really brutal and it maybe reveals some of neil's sadistic tendencies um according to account given by carrie snodgrass in jimmy mcdonough's shaky book she and neil were tripping on lsd and he kept repeatedly asking her to describe her mother Carolyn, uh, who was a severe alcoholic, who had, I guess, regularly feigned suicide in order to test the love of her children, which let's pause and reflect on that for a moment. And also just side note, how terrifying must an LSD field Neil Young be? That must be somebody that I do not want to cross paths with. Have you ever done LSD, Jordan? I have not. No, I have. And I'll (laughs) tell you one thing you don't want to do. (laughs) is think about your parents (laughs) and your past trauma. You have to do that in therapy now. Like when you do like MDMA-assisted therapy, like people very gently guide you into like talking about your past pain and stuff. And Neil Young is just like, they're doing like Owlsley Stanley acid, like the purest acid that's ever been invented. And he's probing her about her parent, like her mom. That is dark. Good God. I mean, also, it's worth noting that her mom, I think, lived with them on this ranch. Yes, she was living with them at the time. So she she doesn't even really need to describe her. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess when you put it that way, there's really, I was going to try to give him the benefit of the doubt and be like, tell me about, you know, what your mom was like. But I guess he knows exactly what her mom was like because he yeah. knows her. And uh, so, yeah, so it's kind of a, a troubling backstory. Apparently, Neil played the song for her when he was working on the album. And when she heard it, she broke down in tears. Uh 
So I guess on some level, I don't know if he told her explicitly, but it definitely resonated with the inspiration behind the song. But Grim. <sighs> Grim, Neil. Come on, man. That's unnecessary roughness. <laughs> on to a lighter topic. That of Sales. record record company finances. Yeah, I mean, with the possible exception of the London Symphony Orchestra, John, Harvest was like a bone cheap affair. They paid those Nashville guys session rates. They recorded in a house and a barn. And with the exception, like I said, of the London Symphony Orchestra stuff, that's a pretty cheap set of dates. And Mazer estimated that thanks to all of these aspects of its recording, it only cost Warner Brothers 50 grand. Wow. And it blew everybody's sales predictions out of the water. I mean, two of Neil's three career top 40 hits, Heart of Gold, Old Man, are from this record. And what other famous records did Harvest murder? Oh, yeah. I mean, this outsold Led Zeppelin. This outsold Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Simon and Garfunkel's mm. Greatest Hits record, which is a huge record. Uh, mm. Ziggy Stardust, Elton John, mm. Uh, mm. even Cheech and Chong. My uh, God. Which, I mean, I know it sounds like a joke now, but that was a huge seller then, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah the yeah. second place that year was Tapestry, Carol King's Tapestry, and that was uh, in second place for the second year in a row. But it was the biggest seller of 1972. And Heart of Gold, as you said, went to number one. It was Neil's... I imagine only number one, pretty insane. Uh, you know, you don't really mm-hmm. think of it as being a tapestry size smash, or at least I don't. I knew a guy who used to tell you, uh, he uh, was a record store clerk and, and <laughs> I was talking to him about prices and he was like, you know what I used to tell if a record store is ripping me off is harvest. <laughs> there are so many damn copies of that record floating around out there that if I go into a record store and somebody's asking like, above $10 for a used record of Harvest, they are full of shit and they are gouging you. Which, it, it's to continue to be my barometer of record store price fairness. Well, there was very nearly a lot fewer copies of Harvest because apparently Neil originally wanted the cover of the record to disintegrate. <laughs> <laughs> which is a very Neil thing. He wanted the cover to basically biodegrade after the shrink wrap was broken, but was understandably overruled by the record company based on not only the expense of coming up with a biodegradable record sleeve, which is insane, but also just, you know, possible product loss due to shipping accidents. The, the record <laughs> company also said, you know, Neil, we'd love to have a, a picture of you for this because you're, you're not on the cover. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I don't want to do that. So in response to their request for a picture, he sent a blurry photo of his own reflection in a doorknob. (laughs) In some ways, Neil Young is like that guy from your college dorm who's just like (laughs) has the worst ideas about everything and is like a major pill to deal with. But then will like sit down and break your heart with a little acoustic ballad. I mean, God, dealing with him must be such... A unique hell, <laughs> you know, like it's someone like David Crosby, like he's motivated by like drugs and sex, like Stephen Stills is motivated by like ego. Graham Nash is motivated by being English. <laughs> and what the f- are Neil Young's motivations? He wants to cause psychic pain, turn people off of hard drugs and and what i'd say go green i don't oh my god what a what a fascinating I mean, two character. of those three are not are you know very uh, legitimate yeah yeah, uh, yeah motivators yeah. yeah that's fair that's fair so we talked a little bit about bob dylan earlier and bob dylan has thoughts about 
Heart of Gold. You have to remember at the time that Bob Dylan has basically been midwifing his career transition from speed-addled garage rocker to autumnal, uh, long-haired, you know, country rock troubadour. I mean, he's he's even singing differently. Like on Nashville Skyline, he quit smoking and his voice is completely changes. And which is weird because he sounds like he's smoking more. On yeah, yeah, like his voice is like. so much lower. But by the time that Harvest comes out, he had just done Self Portrait. He had done New Morning. And apparently, many people were asking him what he thought of Harvest, and specifically what he thought of Old Man around this time period. Because, you know, we mentioned that Young says that Dylan liked A Man Needs a Maid, but Dylan is talking to Spin in 1985. He's talking about people who sounded like him. He said, the only time it bothered me that someone sounded like me was when I was living in Phoenix, Arizona in about 72, which I have questions about that. And the big song at the time was Heart of Gold, Dylan says. It seemed to me somebody else had taken my thing and had run away with it, you know, and I never got over it. Which is weird, A, because what was Bob Dylan doing in Phoenix? And I don't I don't even know if I want to know that story. But he also covers it. He covered it in 2002. So, Jordan, let's contextualize all of this for me. Right. I mean, not that Bob Dylan needs any more credit for anything, but uh, he really signaled the beginning of these, you know, rock stars and rock with the capital R who'd gotten their start in the folk world and had grown tired with the kind of amped up psych rock and which is not super far removed from what you mentioned about, you know, the kind of garage rocky stuff he was doing with the group that would become the band in in 66 with the Blonde on Blonde era stuff, kind of reverting back to their Americana roots. And many people would follow suit. I mean, you've got, as I said, you know, his old backing group, The Band, are a great example. And they would release uh, songs from Big Pink soon after Dylan's uh, John Wesley Harding album in 67. And, you know, in California, many ex-folkies were congregating at places like the Troubadour and the Ash Grove. And they would integrate country music into their folk influences and rock roots. And this was kind of a radical move in the mid to late 60s because country music at that time was kind of seen as having kind of a dirty name, kind of a conservative, you know, music all at that point was sort of seen as being this very forward thinking. You have people like Brian Wilson and the Beatles, all about pioneering, all about the future. Like people didn't really look backwards that much until you have John Leslie Harding, the band Big Pink and their self-titled album, and someone like Graham Parsons encouraging the birds to go to Nashville and make Sweetheart of the Rodeo. You know, they're covering like the old Leuven Brothers songs and Luke McDaniel and stuff like that. That. And, you know, because I was saying, it kind of showed that after years of looking forward as studio pioneers, there was a lot to be learned from looking backward, too. And uh, Neil Young had grown up in Canada, where, as you were saying earlier, the relationship between folk and country was really strong. And, um, being really intimately involved in the Southern California scene with, you know, his time in Buffalo Springfield and Crosby Stills and Nash. You get Poco, you get Flying Burrito Brothers, you get all these kind of country-influenced groups uh, at the dawn of the 70s. So, you know, Neil's shift from these kind of like wall of sound, expecting to fly stuff that he was doing with Jack Nietzsche at the end of Buffalo Springfield to even his first solo record that everybody hates that I love, to then moving into this kind of Nashville-based country tinge stuff. It wasn't that extreme of a shift as a lot of people might think. A lot of people were doing it at that time in the early 70s. It's also funny that he went to Nashville for this because the other big sound from in country music in this era is the Bakersfield sound. And um, when you think about Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, like those guys were 
basically the diametric opposite of Nashville. I mean, at Nashville at this point is like your Patsy Cline's with like orchestra and pop music. It's country pop. And then you get guys like Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. The Bakersfield sound is like got a backbeat, electric guitars. And that's an influence on guys like um, John Fogarty is like a huge mm. Merle Haggard fan. And, and so it's funny to me that Neil picked Nashville because the stuff that he had done on Everybody Knows and like the Crazy Horse stuff seems so much more akin to Bakersfield country than it does Nashville. That's just my two cents. Well, it's probably a mix of him not only just actually being there to do the Johnny Cash show, right. but also, I mean, Dylan recorded Blonde on Blonde there. Yeah. I mean, it was good enough for him. And, you know, he clearly admired Dylan a great deal. So I'm sure just, you know, ease of just I happen to be here at this moment and have a great opportunity. Plus, you know, the fact that somebody who was a real influence on him probably explains how he wound up there. But, you know, regardless of how this record has come to be thought of in the canon of like mid-century American rock and folk and regardless of how well it sold it was not a big critical slam dunk John Mendelssohn wrote in Rolling Stone which has become one of the most famous pans uh, he, he ripped it and he used I mean <laughs> it's like the Spinal Tap reviews bit he uses the phrase half-assed baloney and flatulent and portentous nonsense <laughs> Which I think is, he used the word flaccid in there, too. Hmm. Uh, and he, he said it was a disappointing retread of earlier, better young releases. That seems unfair. It's not inaccurate, but it's like too, it's virile. I mean, that's new young. Yeah, he plays the same six chords in different and beautiful ways. Like, it's whatever. It's fine. But yeah, Rolling Stone would reverse their course later and join the throng of supporters for Harvest, including chart magazine which uh polled readers to determine the 50 greatest canadian albums of all time harvest took number two in polls that were conducted in 1996 2000 2005 it was stuck at number two all three of those times yes what was number one was it something by like rush or like gordon lightfoot's greatest hits like what the hell tragically what, was it really no <laughs> oh, what, what was number one bare naked ladies <laughs> No. C Celine Dion. Celine Dion. No. Number one was uh, Blue. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I can see Harvest taking a backseat to Blue. Okay, yeah. I, I stand corrected. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the defining statements on the record comes from Neil himself. You know, he, he wrote the liner notes to his career retrospective decade. And he wrote of Heart of Gold, this song put me in the middle of the road. Traveling here soon became a bore. So I headed for the ditch. A rougher ride, but I met more interesting people there. So he writes this, and then he goes on to make three perversely trashy and like heavier records. Um, he does On the Beach, he does Tonight's the Night, and he does... What's the third one? Well, he follows up Harvest oh. with Time Fades Away, which is a live album of new material. And it, it obviously doesn't do anywhere nearly as well as Harvest. And he would later say, and this is a quote, people thought that I'd failed with that record, but I knew I'd succeeded <laughs> because I'd succeeded in moving on. I wasn't dragged down by success, which I think, you know, you're getting on like what motivates Neil. I mean, I think that's a pretty good indicator. It kind of encapsulates a lot of his MO right there. Uh, later, he was later asked if he enjoyed the Harvest Sessions, and he said, I don't know if I enjoyed it. I was just experiencing it. I mean, it was very intense. People saw something in me that I didn't see in me. 
classic Neil. You know, as you said, he always talked about how this record put him in a box, but he immediately wanted to get out of, and hence his famous move into the ditch. But, you know, as you also said, he looked back at it with affection in a very Neil kind of way. And, you know, I mean, he would also admit that he would never really be able to return to that emotional place again. And there was a great BBC documentary on Neil. I think it's from like 2007. It's on YouTube. And he'd say, uh, you know, about Harvest, how many sensitive songs can you write before you're just writing a sensitive song? And then it's not sensitive because it's not real. You can't live up to expectations. I was very open and expressive. I still try to be that way, but I'm not 22 or whatever I was at the time. It's like Bob Dylan says, he doesn't know who it was that wrote Blowing in the Wind. He's not sure where that person is. That was a long time ago. That's how I feel about Harvest. That was us. It was proven it was me, but I'm not sure I could recreate that feeling. It has to do with how old I was, what was happening in the world, what I'd just done, and what I wanted to do next. And I thought that was, I don't know, one of the more honest and clear-eyed descriptions of an artistic peak from the vantage point of many decades later. I mean, regardless of whether or not he feels that he can access the emotions that let him create Harvest or whether it's become a kind of albatross around his neck, he's also called it probably the finest record I've ever made. So that's a good defining statement. And whatever his thoughts are, it's still better than trans. Well, we'll get into trans on a future episode, but there are definitely the, the trans yes, defenders we will. out there, too. Well, uh, I think that's about all we got for uh, Harvest. What do you think, Heigl? I'm ready to head to the ditch. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you. I hope you all enjoyed listening. My name's Jordan. And I'm Alex. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, 
safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.